Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 353. Today is February 1st, 2022. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, today is the long-awaited listener question episode. If you're interested in current market conditions, I'll be covering that today as well within the listener questions. So stay tuned. We got a lot of good questions coming up. And the way I'm going to answer these is that I'm going to take the easiest to answer first. And what I've also done is I've consolidated the questions. So if someone asked the same question or a similar question, I'll just merge those questions together and I probably won't read off the person's name that sent it in. But when we get to the specific questions, I will be acknowledging those listeners. Okay, so here we go. First question. What do I think about buying the dip on Chinese stocks? Well, you know me, I'm a big proponent of buying the dip. However, I have not ventured into Chinese stocks, and that's Chinese tech stocks or any Chinese stocks whatsoever. And this is really a different strategy for me to take because in the past, what I've done with Chinese stocks is that I've almost always bought the dip or at least bought it when I thought it was significant enough. And the reason I've always been anxious to buy the Chinese dip is that it's a very cyclical economy. You know, the Chinese economy will be flying sky high. It'll get overheated. That's the time to cash out. Eventually, that will reset. The, the prices of Chinese stocks will come crashing down as the Chinese economy slows down or as there is some type of a international or diplomatic issue with China. You know, the stock prices will come crashing down. They, on a very regular basis, will go into a bear market, meaning that they come down more than 20%, in a lot of cases, a lot more than that. And then when you hear all that bad news, that is the perfect time to buy Chinese stocks. Where if you buy that dip, then whatever the drama was, it blows over. The Chinese government always comes in and stimulates the economy. That keeps the house of cards building another layer. And what will happen is, if you're patient, then likely over the next 6 to 18 months, you'll get a good you know, 30% or more appreciation on your money. That's a pretty good play that you could have over the last, you know, more than a decade with Chinese stocks. However, this time I've been very much concerned because we're seeing the Chinese Communist Party and specifically President Xi really clamping down on private uh, industry, the private sector, uh, specifically on Chinese companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges. And it's been very widespread. It's been the tech stocks, it's been the educational stocks, it's been healthcare stocks. It's really been across the board. You know, right now their economy is slowing down and they're stepping up to the plate and pumping money again. But the problem is, is that they've spooked so many overseas investors and they've created so much uncertainty about what heavy hand the government may use that I'm very concerned and I personally don't want to buy this dip. It may be a great money-making opportunity. It may turn out to be just like every other dip in the last decade or so that's occurred with China. But for me, the risk is just too great. I think we're definitely seeing a more totalitarian control of the Chinese economy by the Chinese Communist Party. That worries me. I also see them really clamping down heavily with very strict capital controls once they get their digital central currency issued. And so for me and my money, I'm just going to play it really cautious I'm going to avoid Chinese stocks. I just think there's so many better opportunities out there. Now, the next question or series of questions all dealt with tech companies, tech stocks. 
And some specific companies were mentioned by name. Other people just asked a general question. Is it, is it time to buy the tech dip? And the short answer is yes, I think it is. And I'll give you a list of companies that I think are really at a buy point right now. The big caveat to all this, and I really want to emphasize, I'm not talking about willy-nilly going out and buying any supposed tech stock simply because the price has crashed. I'm only talking about buying the ones that I think offer significant value. I'll mention you know several of those in a minute here, but that list isn't conclusive. You're going to have to do your own homework and look at the many, many opportunities there are right now, not only in the tech sector, but in just really good quality valued companies. What I want to stress though is just because the price comes down on something doesn't mean you want to buy it. I am still very negative on the meme stocks and the overhyped stay-at-home stocks. So the game stops, the Teladocs, Zoom, DocuSign, Peloton, you know, that list can go on and on. I am avoiding those stocks, and it isn't that they're all necessarily bad companies, but I just think that their valuations got way overhyped during the shutdown, and that even though those prices have come down significantly, none of them are as attractive enough for me to want to get into them, and especially when there are so many other good quality names that are offering excellent value. So absolutely, the tech sector in general, if you want to go out and buy the QQQ, I think that's definitely an option. I also happen to like the RYT, which is an ETF that's focused on the tech sector, but it does it equal weight as opposed to market cap based. And so with the RYT, you'll get much broader exposure to the tech sector and less of a concentration in the big names like Microsoft, Google, Facebook. But again, the valuations have come down so much, even on those big names, that I do like the broader-based QQQ, and I also like the ETF XLK, and that's the technology select sector. So bottom line is, I think we've had a great dip. While there's no guarantee that this stuff can't go lower, especially over the short term, because right now these technical signs look like we're you know just about coming through some type of a retracement and there's a hook and barb pattern going on, that rally can always fall apart and we can go back and test these previous lows and put in some kind of a double bottom or a really accentuated exhaustion point. So again, I'm not saying it's all clear that you can totally risk-free invest in this sector. I'm just saying that the prices have come down significantly enough where there are a lot of really good values and from a long-term perspective, right? If you're not worried about what the price is going to be tomorrow, but you're looking at, you know, like a three-year horizon, then I think that these good quality, reasonably valued tech companies are a good buy and over the next, you know, three years are very likely to have some good solid appreciation because the price is reasonable and they have excellent growth prospects. So specifically, some of these company names are, and I'm lumping these all together in the tech sector because they're all heavily tech-oriented. They may not be pure tech plays, but I'm just considering them in that universe. So I'm talking about companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Taiwan Semiconductor, Qualcomm, AMD, Shopify, Micron, Electronic Arts, and Twitter, just to name a few. Now, again, that's not a comprehensive list. Those are just ones that come top of mind. Some of those I own. Some of them I don't own. Not yet. Hint, hint. I might move more into that direction. We'll see how things play out and listen on as I answer some more listener questions here. But bottom line is, 
those tech companies, as well as many others, and as well as many large, good blue chip, non-tech related companies are on sale right now. I think this January sell-off was a complete head fake. And it's presenting a fantastic opportunity to get into good quality names at a reasonable price if you're a long-term investor. That takes me on to the next listener question, which is basically just focused on my overall market outlook. As I've said before, I do think that 2022 is going to be very volatile. But some people took my term volatile to mean, you know, get out, sell everything. Things are going to get horrible. That's not at all how I'm using that term. Volatile, I mean exactly the way this month has progressed and not only with the way the market has come down, but if you're paying attention, you see that some days, even though the market comes down drastically, there are also some strong relief rallies that have taken place where, you know, in these major indexes, you're seeing them move from peak to trough by as much as more than 5% in a given day. That's extremely volatile and As of late, it's been a lot of volatility on the downside, but I think we'll also see volatility on the upside as well. The reason I say that is that I really believe that this sell-off has been all a big head fake where Wall Street is really perpetrating a big fear tactic that rising interest rates are going to lead us into a recession. We've heard this story many times just in the past couple years. Go back and listen to some previous episodes. I think I did one in either 2018 or 2019. It's probably 2018 where I talked about five reasons why I was optimistic. And a big part of that episode had to do with the fact that everyone on Wall Street was so fearful that the Federal Reserve was going to raise interest rates. Well, my theory was then that it was all talk and that they don't necessarily have to do what they say. Because simply by jawboning and taking a more hawkish stance by saying they're going to raise interest rates, oftentimes is enough just to squelch down the inflation. And if you go back and listen to that episode and then see what ended up playing out, we did not get all those big interest rate hikes in 2019. In fact, I think we only got one or maybe none. I think that's likely to happen again. Right now, inflation is running really high. So all the politicians have to act like they're doing something about it. And so, of course, they're not going to accept responsibility for it and all their profligate spending that they've done, which is, you know, essentially the cause of all the inflation. They're not going to take the blame for that. They're going to put all the blame on the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is happy to accept that responsibility. They'll take it being the fall guy because, you know, they ultimately don't have to answer to the voters And they're more than happy to keep all the power they have by being able to manipulate the economy. So they're happy to be the fall guy for all the inflation that's taking place right now. And I'm not totally letting them off the hook. Yes, they've printed, you know, five, six trillion dollars over the last two years. But as a point I made in a recent blog post over at investablewealth.com, I asked the question, what did that five trillion dollars buy us? Well, on an average basis over the last two years, that got us 1% annual GDP growth. They're at the point where they're not going to print any more money, not because they're worried about inflation or trying to tame inflation, but number one, they've printed so much money that it's lost its effectiveness. And then number two, the government doesn't need all that money. Remember the Federal Reserve, yeah, they'll print money and put some of it into things like uh, long-term mortgages. But the bulk of the money that the Federal Reserve prints goes directly into the government accounts. 
That's how the government can run large deficits and still stay in business because they can very cheaply borrow money from the Federal Reserve. Well, the Federal Reserve can start reducing its balance sheet and it doesn't need to print all that money, not because they're worried about inflation, but for the simple fact that the government deficits are projected to be less now that we're coming out of the pandemic. So the government needs less money, the Fed's going to print less money, and oh, by the way, they can also come out and say that we're using this to fight and tame inflation. It's all nonsense. Wall Street steps up, they perpetrate the fear that we're headed to a recession, and then that way, the retail investors all get spooked, they sell their stocks, they run in panic, and then the smart money on Wall Street comes in and buys the dip. That's exactly what I think we're seeing right now. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, and I'm holding to that statement, that overall, I think the S&P 500 is going to close out the year on a positive note. And I don't mean positive from the dip we're at right now. I mean, from where we started the year on January 1st, I think we'll end the year above that and could be as much as 10%. So while I do think this is going to be a very volatile year, I think it's also going to be a fantastic year for strategically buying not only the dips, but also investing in the right growth companies that have good valuations. So yes, I think 2022 is going to be volatile, but no, I'm not running in panic and I'm not planning on selling all my stocks and going to cash. Not at this point anyways. So that kind of goes on to the next listener question or series of questions, which is, you know, what do you watch for in the economy and how do you juggle your existing portfolio to move into those more strategic stocks? And so specifically in my case, back in October, mid-October of 2020, I bought into 90 stocks. I did that with anywhere from 100% of portfolio value to 50% of portfolio value, depending upon how much old and new money were available to buy those stocks with. There were 90 stocks. I called them the COVID-90. At various times over the last 10 months, they've gone up to really extreme levels. They've fallen back. And then, of course, with this very volatile month, they've you know come down quite a bit since the big fear came out first about Omicron and then about rising interest rates. But overall, those 90 stocks collectively, and I haven't sold any of them, but there's probably about four or five or maybe more of them that got bought out or had mergers or for one reason or another, I was forced to get rid of and those all went out at a profit. But those core positions, I have never willingly sold any of them. I continue to hold them, even though some of them have come down significantly from the highs they've made. But overall, those stocks, remember, I bought them as a group. I didn't buy them because I thought one or two stocks was going to do well. I diversified broadly on what I thought were going to be stocks that would do well into the reopening. And not all of them were directly related to services or travel or hospitality, A lot of them were industrials and other things, but they all played along with that reopening theme. And I haven't sold a one of them because collectively as a group, I still think that they have a lot farther to run. They may not max out to the peak that they got to at one point, but overall they've done very well. Because of regulatory reasons, I can't quote exactly how much those stocks are up, but You can go look at my blog post from October of 2020. There were three days in the middle of October 2020 that I purchased those stocks. I listed what every one of them was. You can look at the price of the stocks on those days and compare it to where they are right now. And you'll come up with a number that is pretty much right around my target for where I wanted those stocks to be over a two-year period, which is a very nice annual rate of return. 
I think they still have plenty of room to run as we go into the reopening. And so I'm not selling and not moving out of any of those stocks just yet. Now, there are some of them that have proved to be dogs and a few others that I did add on later in the year. And then, of course, I owned other stocks previous to buying that COVID-90. So all told, I own about 140 stocks in my personal portfolio. At this point, I'm looking at doing some pruning. I'm going to get rid of the dogs or the ones that I think that have totally peaked out. My initial plan was to do that in the next 60 days or so. This big pullback that we've had in January is probably stopping me from doing that because I think that a lot of these names that have come down are presenting a still a very good opportunity to go back up. And at some point over the course of this year, I will sell off probably at least two-thirds of them. And I'll do that for one of two reasons. One, either I think that we're going to get some type of a pullback, which at this point is a little less likely because we've already seen the pullback, or just because I think that there are other good stocks that present an overall better risk profile. And so as far as those 140 stocks that I own, as they either get to a peak where I don't think they'll go up anymore or where they've just really underperformed and they're dogs and I don't want to own them anymore, I'll sell those off. I'll hold on to whatever winners I want to, and then I'll take that cash, and I'll be positioning that money into things that I think will do well into 2023, and specifically will do well as we get into and through the midterm elections. So the bottom line and the listener questions I'm trying to answer is, is that I am not a buy and hold type investor. I think the buy and hold works. I recommend it for people that don't have a lot of money or people that are new to investing. And over time, it's not a bad strategy. I just don't think it's the best strategy. So if you do nothing more than dollar cost average into the S&P 500, then over the next 20 or 30 years, you will probably do very well, even if all you do is buy and hold. I personally like to actively trade, but that's based on market conditions. I have felt confident enough in the 140 stocks that I've owned over these last two or three years that I've sold very little of them because I thought they all presented a good value and a good upside as we went through the pandemic and now as we move into the endemic phase of this virus. But I'm definitely a believer in turning over your portfolio, keeping the winners, selling the losers, and also just selling the winners that you think maybe have petered out. Building wealth is all about owning appreciating assets. And just like I talked about the Chinese economy being very cyclical, well, all economies are cyclical. We go through peaks and troughs. We go through fear and greed. We go through barren bull markets. And so that's why I choose to be an active investor, not a crazy day trading investor, but an active investor where I want to keep my money investing in appreciating assets, and from time to time, I have to weed out what I have and move into something new. And don't forget, if I think we're headed into a long-term recession, I will definitely sell everything and move to cash. I'm not opposed to owning only cash, and if you go back to, I don't know, probably 2014, 2015, 2016, there were a lot of times, if you listen to the podcast from those old archive dates, there's a lot of time when I was 100% in cash or something that I thought was very stable and cash-like. For example, an ETF that would be invested in the U.S. dollar. So I'm all about taking profits. I'm all about cutting losses. But for right now, with what I see going on in the underlying economy, 
I think what we're hearing is just a lot of noise and static, and I think this bull run can continue to run. Now, as far as specific listener questions, we had one from Noah. Noah's a young guy. He's really smart. He's an engineer. He's starting on his professional career. He's making good money. He wants to save up for his eventual home. He's worried about inflation. And he's specifically asking, what is a young person to do if they want to save for a home in light of rising inflation and Fed rates? Well, Noah, you did give me a lot of good information about yourself, but what I didn't see in the email was a reference to specifically what your time frame is. So, you know, are you looking at buying this property in the next six months, or is this going to be like a seven-year strategy? That's the kind of info you didn't give me exactly. So let me just answer your question this way. If you're short-term saving up for a house, and I'm talking short-term anywhere, you know, at least up to a year, if not longer, I'm going to call that short-term, then I wouldn't worry about interest rates or the Federal Reserve or anything else. I wouldn't worry about inflation. Your greatest risk isn't rising prices or inflation, but your greatest risk is putting it into the market and having the market drop by 20, 30, 40, 50%. And when I say the market, and this goes along with some of the other information that Noah provided to me as to where he's invested, I'm not just talking about the stock market, but I mean the crypto market, the futures market, you know, the options market, any of that stuff. If you're not keeping your money in 100% U.S. dollars in an FDIC-insured bank account, then your money is at risk. And I think it's at greater market risk than anything that you're going to see from inflation, at least in the current situation we're in right now. So if I was going to buy a home in the next three months, six months, you know, 18 months, I wouldn't be fooling around with having that money invested in the market trying to make something because the bottom could fall out and I could lose 30% or a lot more of my principal. Remember, you want to go along with the Mark Twain theory of investing, which is you should be more concerned with the return of your principal than the return on your principal. So for those short-term decisions, and I don't care if it's your emergency fund or your vacation account or what you're saving for for a new car or you know whatever the purchase is, if it's a short-term purchase, keep that money in a very safe FDIC-insured bank account and let inflation do what it's going to do. Now, if you're talking longer term, and specifically, I'm talking long term, you know, three to five years, but there's a gray line on that. You know, is it is it really three years or is it two and a half or 27 months? I don't know, right? I can't predict the future. But if you have a longer term horizon, and basically that means that your plans are flexible enough that should there be a big drawdown in the market and you get caught up in it, that you can bide your time and don't have to panic and sell at the bottom to get your cash out. So if, if you have the luxury of being able to wait through the next recession or through the next bear market, then I would take the risk of putting my money into the stock market. In general, if you invest in the S&P 500, which is good quality American stocks that are based on a growing, thriving American economy, then over time, you will receive a reliable return on your money that generally more than keeps up with inflation. So I wouldn't get cute with my money. If it's short term, I'd keep it in a nice safe bank account. If it's longer term money, I'd put it in the S&P 500. As a side note to Noah's question, and I'm not going to go into details here, but Noah, you'll notice that I didn't say that I'd put half of my money into crypto. Because your risk of putting large amounts of money in crypto are much higher 
than anything you're going to see from the current status of the inflation in the United States. So I'd encourage you to reassess your investment strategy and the risk that you're taking and think about being less aggressive with your money. Whether you're young or old, I always encourage people to invest with caution. Next question comes from Dave, and I know Dave is a long-term listener of the podcast. He says that he's been swing trading. He's done it quite successfully, but it does take a lot of time and effort. And so rather than trading in individual stocks, he's looking at just taking a pool of sector-based ETFs and using his swing trading strategy to move in and out of those, you know, dozen or couple dozen sector-based ETFs. Well, Dave, yes, I would encourage you that if you are a swing trader and you understand the technical aspects of it, that you can absolutely do that using an ETF sector-based strategy and apply that, you know, as you would if it were individual stocks. The theory is the theory. And it does work out. And to your point, I do think it will save you time. And in fact, if you go way, way back to early, early episodes of the podcast, I talked a lot about that specific trading technique. And I used to use the term swing trade all the time. I, over the years, I got away from using that because a lot of new investors and new people to the podcast didn't know what I meant by swing trading. They thought it was my own method, which it, it definitely isn't. I never wanted to take credit for that term or that strategy. It's a well-known and much talked about strategy. Investors Business Daily um, and the founder and editor over there, William O'Neill, wrote a book, I don't know, many decades ago called How to Make Money in Stocks. It's essentially a swing trading type book that talks about the technical aspects and charting. It's something that I do recommend for people that want to get into active trading. It's uh, something I don't agree with, you know, 100% everything he says, but I think he puts out the information in a very succinct and a very logical method that it's easy to follow. And then from there, you can adapt it to your own style of trading. So yes, I'm definitely a big believer in swing trading. The reason I've gotten away from talking about it was I really just got tired of explaining to people what it was, especially to people that I didn't think had enough knowledge to know how to use it. And so over the recent years, I've just simply said things like buy the dip. And again, Dave, what you specifically talk about of using those sector ETFs, I used to build that into my trading all the time in the past. Over the years, as it's gotten cheaper to own individual stocks, and what I mean is because retail brokers are no longer charging transaction fees to buy and sell individual stocks, well, I've gotten away from that sector-focused trading and gotten more into trading individual stocks. Like I mentioned, I own 140 different stocks. Well, you know, 10 years ago, I would have never owned 140 individual stocks because it would have been too expensive. And the friction from all those transaction costs would have eaten up you know, a huge amount of the profit. And so in those days, if I wanted to own the energy sector, I just buy the ETF XLE, where today it isn't that I'm opposed to buying XLE. XLE actually still is in my portfolio, but I'm also very much likely to go in and just buy five or six or more energy-specific companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, Devon, I'll buy those individual companies because it doesn't cost me any more money to do that. And in your case, I can understand it takes a lot of your time. You don't want to do that research. You probably don't want to own 140 different stocks, but this is my full daytime job. And so since there aren't any penalties from commission type trading anymore, I can effectively build my own ETF 
And that's essentially what I've done with, you know, creating things like the COVID-90 portfolio. Now, the next question comes from Jose. His question is about financial freedom, but at the same time, he specifically asks how I spend a typical week. And given the fact that I'm financially independent, and then he also says, if you could provide any guidance as to how to start an investing practice like I have. Well, Jose, good question, but I definitely want to draw some lines here and distinguish between two separate thoughts. So yes, I am financially independent, and yes, I do trade for a living and have an investing firm, but those two are not necessarily related or codependent or, you know, necessarily go together in any way. So I'll answer your question best as I can, but again, know here that I'm giving you two separate and distinct answers. Because just because someone is in the investing business doesn't mean that they have any money and doesn't mean that they're financially independent. In fact, you'll find that the vast majority of people that are in the financial business are just like everybody else and they're broke. They're living paycheck to paycheck and they may talk a good game, but they don't have any money. They're certainly not financially independent. And that's why my friend Jack Spierko, if you know who he is, he has a phrase that he uses for most people in the financial industry, and he calls them financial liars, as opposed to financial advisors. So as they say in Texas, just because somebody has a big hat doesn't mean they own cattle. So in any case, as far as being financially independent, how do I spend a typical week? Well, in my case, I'm financially independent because I worked hard and saved my money and invested it wisely to get to where I am. Now, had I won the lottery, or gotten some big inheritance, or been a trust fund baby, then maybe I would be living a whole lot differently than I do today. But if you remember my 10 wealth building principles, I think the most important of those is wealth building principle number three. Production is the source of wealth. And so my wealth is derived from working. And so as someone that's financially independent, what do I get up every day and do? I go to work every day. And at the start of this podcast, I always say I'm the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, that's true, but I'm also responsible for just not founding the company and being the money manager, but I'm responsible for compliance, accounts receivable, accounts payable, contingency planning, marketing, customer service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So bottom line is I run my business. I know a lot of millennials, a lot of young people, and I guess even some old people, they all talk about FIRE, the acronym F-I-R-E, Financial Independence Retire Early. That's not me. That's not something I was never interested in. I encourage people not to be part of FIRE, not to want to get financially independent so you can retire early, but so you can get up every day and be productive and get paid for the things that you love to do and you do anyways. So I'm all about careers, and lifestyle businesses that you love to do that continue to make you money. And what do I do in a typical week or typical day? Well, I get up in the morning, and the first thing I do is I look at the news. I look what happened in overnight foreign markets. I look to see what the media buzz is. I look at where the futures market is and how that's projecting You know how stocks may open. And then as the market does open, I look and see if that anything happened overnight or whatever is being talked about in the media, if that appears to just be noise and static, or if it appears to really be driving the markets or particular companies one way or the other. And then I take that information, 
if I think that there is some viable, actionable news, and I ignore the headlines, I ignore what the media is saying, and I dig down specifically into whatever they're talking about. And so if they're talking about, you know, the unemployment number is unexpectedly blah, blah, blah. Well, I stop reading their articles and I go down and I drill down into the data. I'll go over to, you know, the government's economic bureau website and I'll look at specifically what the numbers are, what they were in the past. I'll look at the trends. I'll draw my own conclusion and then I'll take that news or I'll take whatever the static or noise is and I will either decide to trade on it or to ignore it. My first priority is to assess my existing portfolio. Do I want to sell anything or do I want to buy anything? Once I've determined that and acted on it and adjusted my portfolio accordingly, after I've done that, then I just go down and those other litany of things that I talked about, compliance, customer service, account maintenance, sales, marketing, contingency planning, paying bills, you know, all those other issues. Once I determine what I'm doing with my portfolio, then I start acting on those other areas and there's enough of them and they're burdensome enough, especially things like the compliance issues that I'll spend the rest of the day working on them. And and then, oh, by the way, I'm going to answer the phones. I'm going to answer email. I'm going to talk to my clients that call in, answer any of those questions. And that's how I spend my day. My business keeps me busy from the time I get up in the morning till I go to bed at night and I love it. Now, as far as your other question, how do you start an investing firm? Well, it depends on you know where you're starting from, but bottom line is it's a highly, highly, extremely regulated business, and you have to start with the regulatory part of it. So whether you're getting licensed with SEC or with your local state, depending upon the scope of your business, you got to make sure that you're in compliance with testings or certifications or whatever they require, and then the whole litany of compliance issues which are constantly ongoing in the business. And along with the specific investing side of it, you also have just general legal structure of setting up your business. So you have to have a business that's an LLC or a partnership or an S-Corp or however you're going to incorporate. You have to have your tax ID. You have to have everything set up from your corporate standpoint. And that includes, you know, your liability insurance, errors omission insurance, having a relationship set up with your broker-dealer that you're going to use for your stock trades. Uh, And then you have to have the ability to attract clients and have your investing strategy. And, you know, it's uh, not just a matter of calling yourself an investment advisor. There's a lot of I's that have to be dotted and T's that have to be crossed. And it all takes money. And if you don't have the resources to fund it yourself, I don't know of anybody that's going to loan you the money or give you the money to do it unless it's maybe like a relative. The bottom line is that an investment firm is just like any other business. It may look easy from the outside, but it requires a lot of work and a lot of effort to make it successful. Let's see here. That takes us to our final comment, which is from Jeff. Jeff didn't ask a question. He simply just told me thank you and how much he loves the podcast. Jeff, thank you. And thank all of you for listening. Until the next time, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.